opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. You're listening to Get the Out. You're listening to Get the Out. Yo, you're listening to Get the Out. You're listening to Get the Out. What's up? You're listening to Get the Out. Yo, you're listening to Get the Out. You're listening to Get the Out. Uh, excuse me, it's Get the Funk Out. Right here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, every Monday at 9. For more information on the show, you can visit the show blog at getthefunkoutshow.kuci.org. That's right, Get the f- Out. All right, enough already. I get it. <laughs> All right, yeehaw. Happy Monday, everybody. I'm your host, Janine. This is Get the Funk Out. And uh, let's see, coming up, first half of the show, Dr. Claire Jean Kim is joining us. She's Associate Professor of Political Science and Asian American Studies at UCI. She has degrees from Harvard and Yale. She's also an author with a new book titled Race, Species, and Nature in a Multicultural Age, due out next year. My pleasure to welcome this week's show, uh, Dr. Claire Kim. Claire, hi, welcome. Hi, Janine. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks for, for calling in. Me. Oh, I'm so glad we could make this work. I read about you in the OC Register magazine, and I thought you have a very interesting background. And um, being that my show is Get the Funk Out, uh, I figured we had a bunch of things to talk about. Great. Thank you. Tell me about mindfulness, what that means to you, because some people, are, they don't really know what that is. Mm-hmm. I think of mindfulness as um, being centered in oneself, and because one is centered, being able to be aware of one's surroundings, including other people, and how they're feeling and what they're going through. So um, if one is mindful, one is centered in oneself, and then present and tuned in mm-hmm. to what's going on around oneself. Right, because a lot of times we can be in a funk, bad mood, whatever, really crabby, because maybe we're we're hot or we have a stomach ache. You know, I mean, the silliest things. But if you're mindful, you try to figure out what is going on with my body. Why am I feeling like this? It's an interesting process. Right, it is. It's um, you know, I've just read a little bit about Buddhist philosophy and practice, and that's a central concept for Buddhism, of course. And the goal of a lot of meditation is to achieve a state of mindfulness. Mm-hmm. Um, which translates directly into feeling better every moment of every day. So it's really something that has like an immediate payoff. Yes, yes. You know, one of the things uh, I find also, and I share this with, I have two kids, is that food affects how we feel. Like I'll tell my younger daughter, she has a sensitivity to wheat. Um, You might be tired because you had too much gluten or maybe you haven't had enough water and that's why you feel the certain way. But that's another thing people should pay attention to. Oh, absolutely. I know I have a friend who has a son who is autistic and he has a lot of different food sensitivities. And Mm -hmm. just one bite of the wrong thing can put him into a bad state for days. So, you know, I think all of us have to some degree some sensitivity to different kinds of food. So I agree with that. Yes. Now, do you have a daily routine for staying funk-free? You know, I know, for instance, I was telling you offline that if I don't get a little bit of exercise in in the morning, you know, I can be a total crab and I'm a better person if I just go take a walk or swim or something. Do you have something that you do? I do. I definitely exercise um, pretty much every day um, Mm -hmm. and pretty strenuously. I find that that's 
the equivalent of an antidepressant for me or something yes. like that. And yes. I've recently begun meditating, which has been tremendous. Um, it's something I'd really recommend because it, it pretty much had immediate effects, and the effects have been to be calmer, quieter in my mind, um, a little bit less driven by emotion, a little bit more able to step back and, and assess what I'm doing. Um, so that's been great. And then work, you know, is, is something that keeps me funk-free. Yes, yes. I think ex- exercise is a huge thing. I I have actually started to bring my kids, if I'm going for a swim, I'll bring them with me, and I notice they're calmer too. Mm-hmm. You know, and if sure. if I'm calm, they're calm. <laughs> right. You know. Tell me, um, you how long have you been a professor at UCI? I have been there since 1995. Long time. Now, how did you end up at UCI? I was on the job market that year, and mm-hmm. um, there was a good job out here, so I came and took it. I grew up on the East Coast. I don't think I had ever even been to California. Where on the East Coast? I grew up outside of D.C. in Maryland. All right. And then I went to school up and down the East Coast, so I had never, you know, I thought of California as sort of a separate country or a separate <laughs> planet. So well, sometimes it was interesting pe- to come out here. Sometimes people do think, my dad thinks it's a separate planet. By the way, Dad, if you're listening, happy birthday. It's my dad's 81st uh, birthday. Yeah. Tell me about if you have a mantra. Do you have a favorite quote you live by? Um, I like Martin Luther King Jr.'s quote, Injustice Anywhere is a Threat to Justice Everywhere. Mm, like and it. the reason I love that quote is that it reminds us that um, you know we tend to think of the kinds of injustice that might affect our life directly. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for instance, if I'm Asian American, which I am, and I think about how does uh, society treat Asian Americans differently, let's say, than other groups? And so that's something that would come naturally to me, I think, um, to think about. But there are other forms of injustice out there which are not only related to the kind of injustice that affects me personally, but just as important. Um, and so I, the reason I like the quote is it ties everything together and points out the connections uh, among all of the different kinds of injustices that we face. That's so. That's and great. That, I love yeah. that. Go. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. And that should concern us, right, as citizens of the world, mm-hmm. right? That we not be just concerned about ourselves, but about what other people are going through as well. That is so true. I love that quote. Now you you've been working on a book, haven't you? Yes, this is my second book. I'm. It's about. I'm just about done. So it'll come out in spring. Um, it's called Race, Species, and Nature in a Multicultural Age. And when I look at our um, controversies over how marginalized human groups, so I look at immigrants of color, um, African Americans, and Native Americans, and at mm-hmm. the controversies over how they use animals in their cultural traditions. So the controversies become race versus species. What's more important, how we treat animals or how we treat um, racialized humans? And um, so I look at the Michael Vick dog fighting case, um, mm-hmm. the macaw whale, whaling controversy in the Pacific Northwest, and also very long controversy in San Francisco's Chinatown about the live animal markets that they have there. What is going on there with live animal markets? Well, they sell in San Francisco's Chinatown, um, they, some of the markets sell turtles, frogs, birds of different kinds, fish, mm-hmm. who are live, right? And so either the customer will have the animal killed on the spot in the store when they purchase them, oh. or they take them home live to their homes and kill them there. And um, so animal advocates in the Bay Area, about in the mid-90s, started to um, challenge these markets and say we either want to regulate them or stop them from selling these um, animals because they argued 
the conditions that the animals were kept in were very cruel, and then the way they were killed right. was very cruel. So, and um, this went on for 15, 17 years. It went through the um, different bodies in San Francisco, went up to the California legislature, the California Fish and Game Commission, San Francisco Superior Court, and was sort of a big political issue in the city for a long time. And one of the reasons it was so interesting is it's pitting, you know, two very um, important issues against one another, multiculturalism or anti-racism, right? The idea that we should be tolerant Mm -hmm. and of immigrants and of their cultural traditions, and we should care um, not to be racist against them. But on the other hand, concern about animals and not wanting to be cruel to animals. And, you know, San Francisco has a very strong reputation as being both sort of a sanctuary city for immigrants, but also yes. pro-animal. Um, so it was particularly interesting that happened in that city because it just got people uh, very confused and riled up. And it's an interesting case. That's really interesting. Were you actually there and saw some of this happen? Um, I did go a lot, very often to interview people, but mm-hmm. I, I, I never lived there. But um, mm-hmm. I did go to interview the people who were involved in it, yeah. Now tell me about your first book. The first book is called um, Bitter Fruit, Politics of Black-Korean Conflict in New York City. And there I was looking at, um, there were a number of conflicts in the 80s and early 90s in New York City which in which um, black um, shoppers at Korean-owned produce stores um, were getting in altercations with the Korean vendors. And then that would lead to... Um, black protests of some kind, uh, mm-hmm. boycotts, marches, demonstrations. And so what I look at is sort of the resurgence of black power in New York City in the 1980s um, and how that tied in with, you know, the city politics at the time and how um, Korean immigrants as, you know, vendors who go into these black neighborhoods where black people themselves cannot afford to buy uh, the stores mm-hmm. and run the stores and bring some of these um some anti-black attitudes from Korea and also absorb further anti-black attitudes being here, the kinds of tensions that creates. And ultimately, I make an argument about um, a racial order in the U.S. about um, with whites on top and blacks on the bottom and Asian immigrants coming in and being sort of slotted in between, um, which is Very pretty visibly demonstrated in this uh, in this this set of controversies. I think I had heard about some things uh, going on in New York, what you're talking about. Uh, I grew up in New York, but earlier on. Uh, but that's really interesting. I, I think I had uh, watched something on TV or something about this. Mm-hmm. When, where did you grow up in New York? East 86th Street. Okay. Mm-hmm. And actually, the time I was living there, it seemed like um, the African-American kids were very angry because they were just so tough. And I think it was a time in the 70s I was in public school initially, and it just seems like there was so much anger. Everybody was beating each other up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, seriously, I mean, I come home with, like, ripped pants. My husband can't believe it. I'm like, no, they was very, very tough. Some of the girls mm-hmm. would, you know, beat the bejeebies mm-hmm. out of me. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Anyway. Right. Yeah. So, oh, well, that's amazing. So when did you, the first book come out? That came out in 2000. 2000. And okay. this one's coming out in the spring. Mm-hmm. You you really are doing a lot. Um, it probably doesn't feel like uh, that, but it's it <laughs> seems like from somebody else's perspective, you've written two books. Oh. I know you also you're a mom, so that must keep you really mm-hmm. busy too. That keeps me busy. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, yeah. You were asking me earlier before the show about being in a funk and then coming out of a funk. And yes. I thought of something that in my own life, which is after I had my son, which is about ten years ago. Um, I had just gotten tenure, then I had my son, and that was definitely what I would call a funk afterwards because I sort of lost my way. Yes. I didn't um, 
didn't come back to work right away. I took a few years off, actually. It took a few years to leave to take care of my son. And then I also felt sort of rudderless in terms of my work because mm-hmm. um, I had gotten to him and I didn't really know what where I was going. And at that point, um, it took me a while to come back. But what I did to come back was find my passion again. So I've been a race scholar since graduate school, and I continue to do that. But I also um, found my passion in animal studies. So that's why this book combines, you know, race studies and animal studies. Um, and finding that passion and starting a new book enabled me to come out of that funk and to get working again. And work for me personally, and I know this is not true for everyone, nor should it be true for everyone, but for me personally, work is sort of the key to, you know, um, being content yes. in life. Yes. So, so um, being able to get back into work in a meaningful way where I was really engaged and my passion was engaged, that meant everything to me. So to get myself out of that funk, which, um, you know, it really meant uh, finding something that I cared enough about that mm-hmm. I wanted to wake up every day and do it. Yes. Um, yeah. We do get more creative, uh, I find, after you have a child, but we do go through this period of, who am I? You know, am, am I going to devote all of my time yeah. to my child and I feel kind of lost and exhausted yeah. and I don't know who I am anymore and what about that career I used to have? Yes, and I, I think all the working moms out there can relate to this, that that sense of who am I and asking those questions never stops, right? I mean, it yes. kind of comes and goes, but yes. you're always at, at some level asking yourself those questions. It's tough. Yes, right. I mean, and I, I also uh, tell people this, that... If you are a happier mom, if you're doing something for yourself, you're going to bring that happiness to your child. I, I think, obviously, if you're miserable, people are going to sense that. Mm-hmm. There's, there's no hiding that. Right. You know. And I, I was talking to somebody who um, is going through a funky period, too, and I was saying, find a group of people that you can, they can be your, your mentors, your sounding board, and you can share you know, your thoughts and what's going on. Because a lot of times that peer group will help you will help bring you out or help, um, you know, just give you an idea of something that will inspire you. Yes, absolutely. And friends. I mean, I have girlfriends. Without whom, I would have been lost at many points in my life. Sure. Um, yeah, so I've definitely leaned on my friends. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah. That's great. That's great. What is something important you've learned as a professor at UCI? Something important I've learned. Or, you know, are you, is there something that, you know, maybe some of your students have inspired you or? Mm-hmm. Well, sure. They do inspire me in the sense that, um, you know, many times I go into the classroom it's the end of a long day. Um, teaching is only, some people have the misconception that if you're a university professor, teaching is 100% of what you do. It's really only about a third of what you do because one third at a place like UCI is research and writing, mm-hmm. and then one third is administrative work of various kinds, and then one third is teaching. So um, sometimes you don't have that much to give your students at the end of the day when you're coming to the classroom. And um, on days like that, I have been inspired when my students, some of them care very deeply about what we're learning about. And I teach classes on race, animals, multiculturalism, things like that. And, you know, they care about injustice in society. They, they, are, they want to learn about it. They want to know what they can do about it. Um, and that sort of youthful energy, youthful optimism, mm-hmm. that really helps. <laughs> when great. You know, as, yes. as I get older and, and sometimes my um, optimism flags. That's great. And I also read in this article about you in OC Register that you're a vegetarian. 
I'm a vegan, yes. Oh, you're vegan. What mm-hmm. led so you... For, Go yeah. ahead. For those who don't know, vegan uh, vegetarians don't eat meat um, or fish, but mm-hmm. vegans don't eat animal products. So that would include dairy, eggs, anything that comes from the body of an animal. Um, vegans do not eat, um, in my case, because, and in most cases, because of the issues of animal cruelty. So because I care about the ethical treatment of animals, I do not eat animal products. My young daughter has started to be the same way, actually. Oh, really? Yeah, That's she... not uncommon, you know, in little kids. They yeah. often have this moment of shock when they realize what they're eating was mm-hmm. an animal, a mm-hmm. living animal. And then they become conditioned, culturally conditioned, to think it's okay. But that's very common. Little kids have that. Yes. And, and then it depends on the parents. Will the parents sort of stamp it out of them? Or will the parents nurture that beginning, you know, that kernel of ethical thinking that's there? Right. Um, so it's a beautiful thing in your daughter. You know, it is. I'm a vegetarian. I do eat. There are a lot of times I'll eat uh, vegan entrees. You know, I make it mm-hmm. home. Um, but we have a fish tank, and I've noticed she won't eat fish anymore. Mm-hmm. She said, I would rather take a huge fish pill <laughs> um, because she has a sensitivity to all animals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. And I, I, I just think it is wonderful. You know, I can't, I can't say, no, you have to eat a hamburger. You know? um, what she's showing is a sensitivity to suffering, and, yes. and that is a human and non-human uh, thing alike, right? It's a, it's right. a across-the-board, cross-species phenomenon to suffer. Right. And and that's what she's showing sensitivity to. It is beautiful. How long have you been a vegan? I have been a vegan for about eight years, um, a little bit on and off. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes I sort of slide off the wagon, but um, I've been vegetarian for eight, uh, 14 years. Okay. And, um, yes, I came to it relatively late in life um, because... I was first sort of an animal lover in the traditional sense, like I liked horses, I had cats, things like that. And then at some point I um, had a few relationships with individual animals where my mind was um, completely changed. I had this one cat um, that I found as a stray when I was on fellowship in Princeton, New Jersey, and I took him in and I became convinced this cat was a great soul who happened to be in a cat's body. And, oh. and at that, you know, and that really, at the same time, I was reading some animal rights literature, like Peter Singer's Animal Liberation. Um, and then I had a horse that I was riding who came down with ringbone, which is this sort of a degenerate, degenerative arthritic condition of the um, ankle awesome. of the horse. And so he couldn't be ridden anymore. And my trainer said to me, well, I'm going to sell him for meat. <gasps> She'd have gotten $800 for meat for him. And he was, she had raised him from a foal, and he was only 12, so he had a lot of good years left. And I said, I'll buy him. And so I, I had to pay her the $800 that she would have gotten for me. Mm-hmm. And then I kept put him on a retirement farm, and the money that I used to ride, I now used then used to support him. And oh, that, wow. that was like one of those decision moments where mm-hmm. everything became clear. Yes. Um, that what I valued was not the riding, but the animal himself. Mm-hmm. And the relationship I had with him, so the sort of those kinds of moments along the way um, transformed me. I love that. That's incredible. And you know, because don't you feel different being a vegan? I mean, physically, mentally, all the way around. I feel um, so peaceful of every day when I wake up and think that I am making a choice to um, not engage in, not support cruelty, mm-hmm. and not support, you know, the causing of suffering to animals. That's something I can do every day. Yes. Um, and, you know, I'm not going to lie and say it's easy. Uh, being vegetarian is pretty easy yes. because most places like hotels and restaurants, they have a vegetarian option. Right. When I travel, it's 
very hard to be vegan. Um, this yes. is the hardest part, right? Because when I'm at home, I have my own. Like, we have a lot of good vegan restaurants in the area. We do. We have Wheel of Life, Native Foods, Veggie Grill. We have Mothers, which has vegan stuff. So yes. we have a lot of options here. But And Whole Foods, you can get a lot of good stuff. But um, when you're traveling, it's very difficult. So I'm not going to lie and say it's easy, but it's something that gives me so much satisfaction um, spiritually um, and emotionally every day that I can make that kind of decision and make a difference. Would you? How would you give advice to someone who says, you know, I'd like to do that, but I know it's not going to happen overnight? Mm-hmm. I have students who do it incrementally, and I would say I did it incrementally because I was vegetarian for many years. And mm-hmm. um, I would say do your research first so that you eat healthy because I had students who became vegetarians and just eat cheese. And, you know, that's not, no. not a healthy way to go. <laughs> you need to find healthy sources of protein for yourself. So do the research. It's all there online, how to be vegetarian or vegan in a healthy way. Yes. And then um, do it incrementally. If you Let's say you decide you don't want to support factory farming and you think um, we shouldn't eat animals, but you're not quite ready to go all the way. Then how about giving up meat on the weekend that's and true. eating meat during the week? Because um, anything you do, it's not about being morally pure or being 100% on anything. It's about everything you do making a difference. What that's, you know, how many fewer cows will be killed because you're not buying that meat on the weekend. Right. Um, yeah, so I would say just take it at the pace that you can take it. No, it's so true. And I think I did something yesterday with my kids. We First we were juicing, um, so that was fun. And then my daughter made vegetarian sushi. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it was just brown rice, seaweed, carrots, and cucumbers, and a drop of avocado. And just the whole conversation about, wow, there's no meat in this, or this is vegan. or it, it just, um, It's a good thing to talk about and then try to be creative, especially on the weekends. Right, absolutely. You know? And it, you know, sometimes it takes a little more effort, but once you get in the swing of it, you, get, you, know, you know where you need to go to get food and what, what to eat and what to cook, then it becomes second nature after a while. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Where can people find out more about you? Do you have a website? or um, I, They can go to my faculty page uh, on the UCI website. Um, if you go to UCI, you can just type me into the search box. Um, and my email is there and a little bit of bio information. And your book is coming out when? In the spring with Cambridge University Press. Wonderful. I want to thank you so much. Do you have any last bit of info you want to share with us? Um, I just would say, you know, in terms of the theme of the show, getting out of a funk, that, mm-hmm. um, in, you know, in three words, it's a, it's a cliche, but it's true for me, is find your passion. I love it. So true, though. Yeah. Well, Claire, thank you so much. By the way, do you like being preferred as Dr. Claire Kim or Claire or? Claire. Claire is good. Okay. <laughs> thank you so much. All right. Have a wonderful fun. day. You too. Okay. Thanks. Bye-bye. That was Claire Kim, who's a writer, professor, human rights advocate, who called in to join us this morning on Get the Funk Out. I'm your host, Janine. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back. when um, we wrap at 10, and then Sheldon Abbott comes on and joins us. The opinions and views expressed on this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information about the show or other programs on KUCI, please log on to KUCI.org for the latest program schedule. You must be your fairy godmother. In the classic fairy tale, Cinderella's dream comes true because the glass slipper fits. It fits. 
In our world, the right fit can be just as important. Good heavens, child. You can't go in there. Especially when it comes to car seats. Always choose a car seat that's the right fit for your child's age and size. Oh, that does make a difference. To make sure your little pumpkin gets there safely every time. Happy to be here. Thank you. Remember, you're responsible for protecting your children. Their happily ever afters are in your hands. <laughs> for even more information about choosing the right car seat, visit safercar.gov slash the right seat. This message has been brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Unexpected reactions to smart financial decisions brought to you by feedthepig.org. Well, I finally did it. I improved my credit score. You're kidding, right? Uh, no. How are we supposed to be the bad boys of Electrosynth Pop if you're out there being responsible? The band is about to be discovered. This is our year. Uh, yeah, you've been saying that for a while now. You think anyone in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame was worried about their credit score? I never really thought that Of we were... course they weren't. Rock stars aren't supposed to think about that kind of stuff. We're supposed to think about how many guitars we've smashed, write aggressively sensitive power ballads, start questionable fashion trends, tragically break up and blame creative differences. All right, all right, just... I thought maybe it was time to take control of my finances, you know? Start using a budget, get out of debt, set some goals. A budget? Debt? Set some goals? Listen, I knew that we'd have our creative differences, but I was hoping they'd involve a little more scandal. When it comes to financial stability, don't get left behind. Get tools and tips for saving at feedthepig.org. This message brought to you by the American Institute of CPAs and the Ad Council. Hi there, you're listening to Get the Funk Out. Uh, before we, before I share uh, another guest that uh, was on the show in the past, Shelley Deccan, I want to share a book I'm reading. I've decided that each week I'm going to uh, share some stuff I'm reading because it's very inspiring uh, for people that are in a funk. You know, you're going through a tough time, whether it's a personal funk, professional funk, whatever. And uh, I listened to uh, some other shows, and I was I heard about an author. Well, everybody's heard about this, Anthony Robbins' book. Awaken the Giant Within, uh, probably a lot of you have heard about it. Anyway, it's a huge book, and uh, it's, very sl it's been very slow for me to get into it because it's such a massive book, but it's very interesting, some of the advice that um, I've been reading about. The book is How to Take Immediate Control of Your Mental, Emotional, Physical, and Financial Destiny. I was actually sharing with Sheldon how, you know, even in your own situation, maybe you're the change you want to make is you want to declutter your house. I'm very guilty of having a lot of stuff I want to get rid of. And just having all that stuff around kind of bogs me down, doesn't make me productive. Because if you're surrounded by all this junk around you, and you, it seems like you don't have a clear head. So I was picking up this book, and it inspires me professionally as well as personally because it talks about making change. So I want to just share with you a little bit of this, and then we'll get on to uh, Shelley Detkin. Again, the book is called Awaken the Giant Within by Anthony Robbins. How to create lasting change. For changes to be of any true value, they've got to be lasting and consistent. We've all experienced change for a moment, only to feel let down and disappointed in the end. In fact, many people attempt change with a sense of fear and dread because unconsciously, they believe that changes will only be temporary. Now, a prime example of this is someone who needs to begin dieting but finds himself putting it off primarily because he unconsciously knows that whatever pain he endures in order to create the change will bring him only a short-term reward. For most of my life, 
I've pursued what I consider to be the most organizing principles of lasting change, and you'll learn many of these and how to utilize them in the pages that follow. But for now, I'd like to share with you three elementary principles of change that you and I can use immediately to change our lives. While these principles are simple, they are also extremely powerful when they are skillfully applied. These are the exact same changes that an individual must make in order to create personal change, that a company must make in order to maximize its potential, and that a country must make in order to carve out its place in the world. In fact, as a world community, these are the changes that we all must make to preserve the quality of life around the globe. So again, this is an excerpt from Tony Robbins' book, Awaken the Giant Within. Uh, the first step, he suggests, is raise your standards. So anytime you sincerely want to make a change, the first thing you must do is raise your standards. When people ask me what really changed my life eight years ago, I tell them that absolutely the most important thing was changing what I demanded of myself. I wrote down all the things I would no longer accept in my life, all the things I would no longer tolerate, and all the things that I aspired to becoming. Think of the far-reaching consequences set in motion by men and women who raised their standards and acted in accordance with them, deciding they would tolerate no less. History chronicles the inspiring examples of people like Leonardo da Vinci, Abraham Lincoln, Helen Keller, and the list goes on and on. The same power that was available to them is available to you. If you have the courage to claim it, changing an organization, a company, a country, or a world begins with the simple step of changing yourself. All right, I'm going to wrap it there, but um, again, I'm going to share excerpts every week from the different things I'm reading. Uh, the next step he's gonna talk about is changing your limiting, limiting beliefs and also changing your strategy. I'll have more information on my blog later on. Uh, we're gonna continue the show with special guest, Shelley Dedkin.